Arlie Bach settles in his chair in the Department of Hygiene at Harvard Medical School. He nervously taps his fingers on a pile of Rorschach tests and blank questionnaires. Dr. Bach is about to take the biggest gamble of his career. He's launching a new study, and research subject number one is due any minute. It's 1938. Scientists have spent lots of time figuring out what makes people sick. Bach wants to know what makes them well. What are the forces and habits, the conditions and attitudes that bend the arc of people's lives? What makes them live longer, feel better, succeed in the world? So he's put together a new kind of study with a large team of researchers. They call it the Grant Study, after the retail tycoon who agreed to fund it. The work will go on as long as the subjects are alive. And unless Bach discovers the fountain of youth, he will never see the results. A young man enters, makes his way to the chair, and the questioning begins. And it continues, year after year, decade after decade, and not just interviews, but social and medical histories, details of major organ functions, heart rate, lipid count, handwriting samples, favorite brand of cigarette, how they learned about sex, anything that might affect their well-being. The annual or biennial questions sent every one or two years also included essay-type questions which work pretty well for Harvard men who have trouble stopping talking. Psychiatrist George Vallant takes over in 1972. By then, one of the subjects, John Kennedy, has been elected president and then killed by an assassin's bullet. Another, Ben Bradley, is executive editor of the Washington Post. 20 have had severe psychiatric illnesses. Studies like this are exceedingly rare. Almost all projects of this kind fall apart within a decade. Robert Waldinger, a psychiatrist and Zen priest, takes over in 2004. This is him at TEDx. Pictures of entire lives, of the choices that people make and how those choices work out for them, those pictures are almost impossible to get. Most of what we know about human life, we know from asking people to remember the past. And as we know, hindsight is anything but 2020. As the decades pass, as the data accumulate, the researchers start to see patterns. Alcohol is hard on marriages. Children can survive early hardship. Life doesn't stop at 40. People can change. But one thing emerges above all the others. What are the lessons that come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives? Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. So there is the answer to the question Arlie Bach posed back in 1938. Friendship is the miracle drug that makes us happy and extends our lives. And we're only now discovering why. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. 
I founded the Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, friendship, why it matters, and how to get more of it into our lives. The story about the Harvard study is from a new book by Lydia Denworth called Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Lydia is a science journalist, a regular contributor to Scientific American and Psychology Today, and she's already written two other fascinating books, I Can Hear You Whisper about the science of sound and language and Toxic Truth about lead poisoning. In Friendship, she dives into the science behind one of life's biggest mysteries, why a strong network of friends makes us happier, healthier, and more successful. Before we dive in, a note about timing. I spoke with Lydia Denworth in a studio in Manhattan in early March. We were concerned about the emerging COVID-19 pandemic, but we were not yet in quarantine. The crisis comes up in our conversation, but at this point, there was still a lot we didn't know. Now, a few months later, I think her insights about friendship are more relevant than ever. Lydia Denworth, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. It's so great to have you here today. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. I have a well-worn copy of your wonderful new book, Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond here. And I have to tell you, this whole idea that friendship is important, Big Bird, Burton Ernie, Mr. <laughs> Rogers, they've been on to this importance of friendship thing for some time, not to mention, as you pointed out in the book, Shakespeare, Aristotle, the poets and bards of antiquity. Why did it take scientists so long to address this? That is such a good question, and that's part of why I wanted to write the book. I love to look at the evolution of knowledge, and I thought, why is it? Why did it take so long for us to know that this is not just valuable but invaluable, that this is really a matter of life and death? And the reason, I think, is because for a long time, scientists didn't fully appreciate the importance of relationships in general. And part of that— you know, it's squishy. <laughs> it's, I mean, you, you know, Sesame Street and, uh, you know, or, or it's the stuff of women's magazines. And, and so I think that there was a hesitation by some scientists to, to delve into it because, you know, it was uh, unscholarly. And also then it's just plain hard to measure and to define. And science really needs measurement. You know, you need to have variables to compare and outcomes to look at. So the first thing that had to happen was that people had to think that it might matter, and then they had to figure out how to go about measuring it and studying it. And the logic, I imagine, among scientists used to be that, okay, well, we know that pair bonding, right, courting rituals and mating, clearly directly corresponds with reproductive success. So that clearly is a sort of Darwinian biological process. And even helping out relatives, right? You know, Richard Dawkins taught us about our selfish genes and how it's in our interests, right, to cause those genes to prosper. But helping out non-relatives for a long time probably appeared to scientists as something that might have been just sort of this accidental carryover of, of our impulse to help out our genetic kin. It was actually the big hole in Darwinian theory 
was to how do you explain altruism? How do you explain the fact that some individuals do go to great lengths and put themselves at considerable risk to help others to whom they're not related? And so that can be a human being jumping in a lake to save somebody who's drowning that they don't know. But it can also be, you know, a bird giving a warning signal and therefore calling attention to itself in order to save the entire flock, right, and not just its relatives. And nobody really had a good explanation for that for a very long time. And then an evolutionary biologist named Robert Trivers, who was at Harvard in the 70s, he he developed the idea of reciprocal altruism, which is really sort of a foundation for f- how we think about friendship and how we got to understanding that that being sort of being good to others and connecting and looking to to you know err on the positive side of interaction rather than the just the competitive negative side might have a real benefit for the larger community. And reciprocal altruism is basically the concept that, you know, you do something for me, I do something for you. And now we understand that reciprocity is a fundamental part of friendship. But it doesn't have to be like a tit-for-tat accounting. It's bigger than that. It's ironic that we're having this conversation about friendship in a moment where we're all afraid to go outside, much less shake someone's hand. So how do you think about friendship in this moment in history? Here's what I think is really important. Even in a time of a pandemic, it's going to be really critical that friends are there for each other. I think what we have to do is think more creatively and think a little harder about how we help each other and how we interact. So, for instance, one of the critical pieces of friendship is showing up for each other, but maybe we have to show up from a distance. <laughs> you know, maybe we order things for friends that we know are isolated or mm-hmm. in quarantine, or maybe we um, just check in. This is a time to embrace digital technology. This mm-hmm. is a moment like this when we really are being told not to interact with our friends in person doesn't mean that we can't interact with them in other ways. And I think it will be critical that we do. And that, in fact, we take a little lesson from our kids and their the way they play their video games with each other over mm-hmm. the internet. Right, I mean, right. why don't adults have, you know, right. watch parties where we all can chat over the internet while we watch the same show or something right. do, like do that, a, you know? a video hangout with a, co- with, a, with a glass of white yeah, wine. Yeah, something, something. I don't know. I think we need to be creative about it. I, I, there will probably be other people who can come up with better ideas. but And we also need to check in I think, mm-hmm. on people who live alone or that we might be worried about or mm-hmm. older friends and relatives. And so we need to be mindful that, I mean, being there to help each other, a willingness to help, especially in times of crisis, is one of the most important characteristics of friendship. Mm-hmm. And I don't want us to lose sight of that mm-hmm. in this moment. And I don't want us to be so afraid that we just sort of separate because, as we know, friendship and and close social bonds do, in mm-hmm. fact, improve our health. Yep. They improve our immune systems. And so we can't shut out our friends altogether. Right. We need to just think harder about how to be friends in this era. Well, and sometimes times of collective trauma can be opportunities to connect. Sometimes this is when we connect most effectively. And maybe it needs to be sometimes over the telephone or or, or video or what have you. But yeah, but maybe it's this, an opportunity. Is a, this is a moment to... Uh, Write a letter to a friend you haven't communicated to. A letter. Kick it old school. How (laughs) about that? Or call someone on the phone. Could I write a letter, take a photo of it, and then (laughs) then instant message it? Because I'm not sure that I— That you even have anybody's address anymore? Um, But, you know, 
what if we used this as a way to kind of um, look for some both old and new ways of, mm-hmm. of interacting with people? I mean, so everything from video conferencing, which is the latest thing, right, to writing a letter or actually just calling someone when maybe you would have otherwise, I don't know, met up for, for a drink or something. And the other thing that strikes me is that this era of the fear over coronavirus is really a time when what we all need to do is cooperate, mm-hmm. right? And so the same kind of instinct to come together and to think about the greater good that inspires a lot of what has happened evolutionarily to make friendship so important is at work here too. You know, we need to think about kind of the larger group and not ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And that's what's going to help us yep. get past this. Absolutely. So there was this extraordinary 75-year Harvard longitudinal study from which we learned quite a bit. Can you tell us about that? It began with a bunch of students at Harvard in the 1930s. And in fact, people like JFK and Ben Bradley, the late editor of the Washington Post, were part of it. And then they added in some teenagers from Boston as well. And there was a total, I think it's 724 men who were followed literally for the duration of their lives. So from their teens and 20s all the way into their 80s and 90s, should they have been fortunate to live that long. And the goal there was to see what were the makings of a good life. This is not a representative sample of the United States, but it was a fascinating study. And one of the really important significant takeaways is that the best predictor of being healthy at 80 is not your cholesterol level at 50, not your wealth, not your professional success, but your satisfaction with your relationships, right? The quality of your relationships, relationships plural, not just your spouse and whether you have one, but whether you have good friends and whether you feel socially connected at 50 is everything. So it turns out that there's a biology to friendship, right? A neurochemistry. We can see it in our genes. It's visible in our brains. What does it look like? Well... Nobody's asked me that, Rufus. One thing it looks like is that my brain and my friend's brain actually process the world more similarly than people who that were I'm not as close to. And so that it looks like a, a map of what's the activity in the brain, sort of. I couldn't tell you how it looks different, just that it looks more similar (laughs) to the people you're friends with, right? It's it's extraordinary. And those fMRI studies, and the closer you are to the friend, the more similar your brainwaves were. Three degrees of separation, you can count them out. One, two, three. It's extraordinary. And and back to the wisdom of the ancients, Aristotle said, what is a friend, a single soul dwelling in two bodies? And we can literally see that map now in brainwaves. We can. And and you have to wonder, I mean, I, I do say in the book, I can't know what Aristotle imagined. It's hard to imagine that he would have seen just how right he was. But most of what he said about friendship actually turned out to be pretty spot on. There's so much great information about animals in your book, especially monkeys. Yeah. And by the way, I, I was fascinated by your having gone on uh, experienced some of these monkey studies. What can they teach us about human friendship? First of all, especially in non-human primates, so monkeys and apes, their social behavior is quite similar to ours. Obviously not in every respect, but there are plenty of similarities, and the longer you watch them, the more you see that. And then the other piece of it is that their brains are kind of homologous to ours. And so there are definitely things that we can learn from their behavior and from their brain activity that can tell us something about humans. But it isn't just monkeys, because this is the thing, is that when people started looking at social bonds, like once they started to appreciate that 
even just this concept of a relationship, which at its simplest is the sort of repeated series of interactions that two individuals have and that that builds a, an evolving content in a, in a sense, you know, there's some memory of, of that. Now, do zebrafish have memory of what their past interactions? Apparently, they have enough memory that they know who are familiar fish and who are not, right? And sheep can recognize the faces of sheep that they grew up with, even if they've been separated for years, right? So there's more going on in other species than we have traditionally appreciated. And it turns out that there's friendship or something like it in a whole lot of other species where animals hang out more often than chance with, like, you know, their best friend. So once we started to see this in other animals, it signaled to the evolutionary biologists who do this work and to primatologists and people who study animal behavior that there was some universals here and that there was something bigger going on when you think about friendship and social behavior. If we understand that friendship is evolutionary, then that tells us that there's a biology to it. It tells mm -hmm, us that mm -hmm. it's it's in our genes, in our gene expression. It's in the way our bodies are designed mm -hmm. to operate. And that's, first of all, fascinating. <laughs> and secondly, important, because it has a lot to tell us about both how we interact, how to help people interact more healthily, and how to, you know, what to prioritize. I mean, this whole idea that I'm saying that friendship is something that you should really prioritize in your life because it's important for your health, we wouldn't have known that. We couldn't have claimed that if we if we hadn't looked at it in this bigger yep. evolutionary yep. way. So let's talk about the opposite of friendship, mm -hmm. loneliness. I love your comment that we use the word solitude to describe the joy of being alone, and we use the word loneliness to describe the pain of being alone. But it seems to me that solitude, for most everybody, at some point results in loneliness, right? And loneliness, we register as almost a form of physical trauma. Well, that was one of the really interesting things to come out of the science of loneliness, which really only began in the 1990s with a social psychologist named John Cassioppo at the University of Chicago. And he came to understand loneliness as the body's physical response to a lack of social connection, something akin to hunger and thirst. It was the body telling you that you needed to get out and see people and interact. And I don't think anybody had thought about it that way before. You know, it was seen as this, sure, it's an emotion and it's unpleasant, but, you know, how, how bad could it really be? And now we know that it is right up there with some of the worst things of really traumatic experiences people can have. I mean, the effect on your body of loneliness is the same uh, in many ways as severe trauma as a child or poverty or um, all kinds of other things. And so this is serious, serious stuff. I mean, this idea that loneliness is a physiological trigger signal is kind of extraordinary to me that, like, hunger tells me I need to eat, thirst tells me I need to drink, and loneliness is is a, literally a bodily physical response to a need to connect with others, which suggests that there's an evolutionary purpose for this response, right? And, and what do we think that is? Exactly that, that there is a need to connect and belong and a need to to build strong bonds with other individuals. And the fact that we now see friendship or something like it in a whole lot of other species is what tells us that there's something more universal and evolutionary about it. I mean, for, for a long time, and this is one of the other reasons why it didn't get studied, is that people thought of friendship as cultural, you know, that it was a product of human language. It was a relatively late 
groundbreaking development Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the human history. Yes, there are plenty of cultural aspects to friendship, but it turns out that there is this much deeper fundamental sort of reason for friendship. You know, I think if we can engage in a little bit of reckless speculation about about <laughs> sort of like the, the ancestral environment and wh- how that would come to pass, I, I remember reading that, I, I don't know whether or not this is true, but that we all experience stage fright. Every, everyone at some point has experienced this sense of stage fright. And, mm-hmm. and I, I heard it explained as, from an evolutionary point of view, that if you are on your own and looking at a large crowd of people looking at you, it's either because they really love your singing <laughs> or something something good has happened, you're in a leadership position, or they've all turned on you, right? And to be exiled, I mean, in our ancestral mm. environment, if the group turned on you and you were isolated, that was a traumatic set of conditions because apparently this sense of loneliness triggers inflammation, right? And and an almost, an almost an emergency fight or flight kind of response. It's certainly true that in ancient times, the being alone was not a good thing and that you were not going to be long for this world. And that's why you never did find early humans alone, really. And I mean, in modern society, we, we often think about people like the Unabomber. When you, when you think about yeah, someone yeah, who, who, yeah. Li- who isolates himself or herself from society, it's not normally because they're so healthy and, and you know, well-adjusted. And, and now, actually, we know that, yes, it's entirely possible for a modern-day human to mostly live by themselves in an apartment and, you know, to function. But what this research is telling us is that actually they're not all that healthy, right? And they will not live as long. I mean, you can't. There's individual variation. But on a population level, that's a bad strategy for survival. Right. And in contrast, the presence of friends diminishes fear and makes us feel safe and secure, I think it's called social buffering. Social buffering. So in so social buffering is the idea that the presence of another human either relaxes you, calms you down, or could stress you out. But the buffering part would be that they're relaxing you. And I mean, I thought one of my favorite studies was one where they they just found that if two people are standing and looking at a hill, it doesn't look as steep if you're with a friend. Is that right? Yes. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean— that's, there, there are all kinds of ways in which friends calm us down and make us feel that we're up to the challenge of things that is really critical. So friendship turns out to be as important for our health, maybe even more important, than diet and exercise. It increases our natural immunity. We are biologically stronger when somebody has our back. But isn't all that under threat? Don't our smartphones and social media networks pull us apart as much as they bring us together? Haven't we stopped bowling and joining clubs? Forget about the coronavirus. Aren't we in the middle of a loneliness epidemic? Lydia Denworth has done the research, and her answer might surprise you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Lydia Denworth says a key to living longer is sharing with your friends. And an easy way to do that right now is to give the gift of the Next Big Idea Club, the subscription community that powers this podcast. 
Get them the most provocative new nonfiction books along with videos, audio, and reading guides from the authors, all curated for you by top writers like Malcolm Gladwell and Susan Cain. You'll be healthier and your friends will never be lonely again. Or sign up yourself and benefit from the healing power of our online community and live events. You can get a free copy of Lydia Denworth's Friendship if you join us now at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. So let's talk about the subject you thought, I think, as you were writing the book would be the most controversial social media. Yes. I gather that you were rewriting the chapter on social media right up to the 11th hour. I was. Due to a new collection of research that was coming out. What does the latest research say about social media and how it impacts our friendships? The latest research says that we should take a big, deep breath and calm down and that it isn't quite as terrible as we have been led to believe. But I will say, yes, I was honestly dreading even having to write about this because it felt like a quagmire. And I thought, you know, how am I going to wade into this mess of, you know, one study that says it increases loneliness and another that says it increases connection. And who am I to be the judge of which is true, right? But in fact, happily for me, new research was coming out right as I was finishing the book, as you indicated, that really looked back at everything else that had been done. What they did was they combined literally every study that had been done from 2006 when the first one occurred of looking at social media use and well-being. And now well-being can mean a couple of different things, but he looked at 225 studies. This was done out of the Stanford Center for Social Media by a guy named Jeff Hancock. And that meant that they had hundreds of thousands of people that they were looking at in all these combined studies. And what they found was, yes, social media has some negatives. It did increase depression and anxiety a little bit. And it had some positives. It increased several kinds of happiness. But all of the effects were small. And the one that was strongest was relationships. So, The biggest effect was positive, and it was on relationships. And so what they were finding was that social media use actually does, on balance, increase our sense of connection. And the other thing that they found is that, importantly, much of the science that had already been done was not all that high quality. And this isn't always the fault of the scientists. It's that at the beginning, you don't ask nuanced questions. You're just trying to get a big picture. So almost everything focused on screen time Mm -hmm. and how many hours were you spending. And now we know that that concept of screen time is almost meaningless because there are so many screens and there are so many things to be doing with them and they are not the same, right? And so I might be Skyping with my grandmother and I might be watching pornography and hopefully those do not have the same effect on me and my social instincts. And uh, so now what we need is a science of social media 2.0 that asks better questions, that looks at context and content. And so I'm not saying that social media is all good, but it does seem that on balance, it is not so terrible for relationships. And a couple of important points. One is that If you use social media as one more channel with which to Mm -hmm. communicate with friends that you see in other ways, it -hmm. strengthens those bonds, right? And also, interestingly, our online lives and our offline lives often mirror each other more than we appreciate. Mm -hmm. So if you Mm -hmm. have a big network online, you tend to have a big network offline. Now, that doesn't mean that an actual friend is the same thing as a Facebook friend, right? But I think we know that. I mean, that's why we call them 
Facebook friends, <laughs> because that's a specific thing in our society now. It means a person that you interact with on Facebook, but not in the rest of your life, right? Yeah, yeah, or that you haven't yeah. seen in 30 years, or that you might not even recognize if you walk down the street, you know, and pass them on the sidewalk. Or So those relationships give us something different, but it's not the same as the sort of core friendships that are what I'm really talking about when right, I'm saying that right. friendship is important for your health. Right. It sounds like your take is this broad view that the currency of friendship has been devalued by the way we talk about Facebook friends, that that's not giving people enough credit. That's basically right. I think we're smarter than that and that real friendship is alive and well in the age of Facebook. And it isn't just about Facebook. It's still about how we interact with our friends when we're alone with them or when we're talking to them on the phone. And, you know, it's it's now I will say this. Let me go on the record as saying people should put down their phones when they are together face to face with their good friends um, or with their family. It is very disruptive and it is it's not conducive to strengthening the bonds that you have with those people in that moment. And so that is important. And I know that that is one of the things that people really object to. But what I find is that when people start criticizing the way technology and social media are ruining friendships, they say really big things like yeah. social media has destroyed friendship. Well, it hasn't. It just hasn't. So when you came home from the monkey colony. Yes. There's a wonderful description of your opening the door and seeing your son and his friend just sort of splayed out playing video games, right? And your initial response was not one of pleasure. No, it was not. No, it was not. I believe you, you told me you have a teenage son. I Am do. I right? Yes. yes, I do. So you've seen this. You oh, know yes. this. You oh, know yes. this. There they were on the couch playing NBA 2K, and it was like they had never left in the week that I had been gone in Puerto Rico with the monkeys. And, you know, I was so just pissed off. I was annoyed. I thought, surely you have something better to do with your time than this. And it feels like you're sitting here doing nothing. And that wasn't entirely fair because they had just graduated from high school and, you know, they deserved a break and all of this. But still, I couldn't help it. It's just, you know, I had this, I don't know, I had this strong reaction to them playing video games. But then I literally stood there. I had an epiphany that's rare in life, an actual epiphany. But I thought, wait, Lydia, they're not doing nothing. Thing. You know, look at how they're sitting in close proximity. And they were just like these, you know, let me not extend the metaphor too far, but it was very much like these monkeys I'd just been watching, right? And here I had been talking about the science of friendship and thinking about social behavior, watching these monkeys in close proximity and grooming and hanging out. And then I come home and I find my son with his very best friend doing very similar things, sitting next to each other on the couch, joking and laughing and hanging out and playing video games. And all I see is the video game, right? I, I don't really see the visceral connection between them. And, and I realized my mistake, and I think it's a mistake that we make way too often as parents, as spouses, even with our friends in general or in our own lives, that we fail to consider the friendship factor mm -hmm. in the decisions we make and in the judgments we pass on the people around us. Yeah, I have three boys, so I've seen quite I have a few. Three boys oh, do too. you too? Yes, I, I do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, lucky us. Lucky uh, us. Uh, and um, so I'm very well acquainted with the video games, yes. uh, the, the range of video games that are appealing to boys at different ages. But one thing that strikes me as really positive is I've noticed over the years that they're becoming more and more social. The video games. The video yes, games, right? yes. I mean, I think 10 years ago, there was a lot more sort of isolated video game playing. Now, I think all the video games that my kids are interested in involve live communication with a group of friends. And there's a lot of social dynamics at play. 
There really are. And I think this is fascinating. I first noticed it with Fortnite when that was such a craze. Mm -hmm. It may have predated that. I'm not sure. But it turns out that the statistics are really powerful. So first of all, this ship has sailed. If we think we're stopping video games, we're not. Because 97% of boys, according to the Pew Research Center, are playing Mm -hmm. video games of Mm -hmm. adolescents. And 83% of girls are playing video games. But three quarters of them are doing it with someone else, not doing it alone, right? So they are either in the room together or they are over the internet or they're doing multiplayer games. And that's what Fortnite Mm -hmm. was very much a sort of joint endeavor, right? And I would walk in on my boys playing Fortnite with their cousins who lived on the other side of the country or with their friend who lived on the other side of the city on a regular basis. I mean, they were interacting with their cousins in a way that they rarely did otherwise. And and I did have to stop then and say, hey, wait a, wait a minute. This is new. This is different. This might be giving them yeah. something else that they, yeah. you know, that they're not getting. So that's not to say that video games are all wonderful or that it is the only way kids should spend their time, but it really is an example of how adults need to make sure that they're really seeing what's going on. And are they playing with another kid or mm-hmm. are they playing alone? I mean, that, mm-hmm. there's a vast difference, right, in those two things. And it's important to know which one it is. Yeah. No, I often hear such extraordinary peals of laughter <laughs> and, sh- and joyous shrieking. And I have the sense that they're building relationships. And they make dates to say, mm-hmm. you know, let's yeah, meet so. up at such and such a time. We're all going to play whatever game it is, you know. And so they all from their separate houses can get together that way. And I just, yeah, I think it's 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 kind of fascinating. It shows how these different generations do things differently. And in fact, I mean, what we were doing when I was growing up was people were just sort of staying home and watching TV for hours. That yeah. was not interactive. Right. Maybe yeah. somebody was sitting next to you on the couch, but you were not interacting in the same way. One final comment on the social media is that it strikes me that we may have an expectation management problem with social media. I think so many people that I know in the last several years kind of dove into this experience wide-eyed and enjoyed the sense that they had 150 or 200 good friends. Mm -hmm. And then there was a little bit of a hangover realizing like, wait a second, they're really not all good friends. But I think maybe we're coming out of this and maybe realizing Gosh, it would be nice to have 100 friends, <laughs> you well, know? and I, we should work harder at yeah, it, and we I should think, make it real. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's a, a very fair point because one of the things that I think is important, why I say social media hasn't destroyed friendship, is because friendship is a bunch of different things. It's, but yeah. at its core, it's yeah. this inner circle of people that you feel really, really strongly bonded to, right? Yeah. And most of us have an average of four people in our inner circle, and that can be family and friends. But so there's that group. And then you go out in these concentric circles, and if you just keep extending the metaphor, your 150 Facebook friends are are several rungs out on the circle, right? But that's a different kind of relationship. It doesn't have to be exactly the same. So I think if we can differentiate and understand that not all friendships are the same kind of friendship, I mean, we don't have that many different words for it in English, but we live it differently, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so that's what's important to understand. And so social media has its place in that, but so does the important time together with people without social media. So don't put down your phone just yet, unless you're with someone, in which case it's rude, people. But what if your problem isn't that you got too many not-so-close friends, but rather that you don't have enough friends, period? As kids, making friends seems as easy as breathing. As adults, it feels a lot trickier. But Lydia Denworth has some tips on how to pull it off.
Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were FinTech developers. We'd been a FinTech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a FinTech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. It's early evening in a two-bedroom house in South L.A., Paula Dutton finishes the dishes after a quiet dinner alone. Now it's time for the sofa and another dose of TV. Paula's in her mid-60s, and quiet pretty well describes her life. She hasn't spoken with anyone today, or yesterday for that matter. She can't remember the last time she had a real conversation with a neighbor. Paula never really thought about what she'd do after she retired from her job with an airline a few years back. It turns out she doesn't have many friends outside the office, and her office friends still work during the day. She doesn't have kids or a partner. She was married for a while, but it didn't work out. She talks on the phone with a cousin sometimes, but they aren't really close. She's been putting on weight, thinking about her aches and pains, not doing much of anything. She's on her way to the living room when her heart starts to race. It's like nothing she's ever felt before. She feels a stab of pain in her chest. She gulps for air. She can barely breathe. This is it, she tells herself. She reaches for the phone, calls 911, and waits for the end. It's only now that she realizes how alone she is and how lonely. Paula's still alive when the paramedics come. They tell her she isn't dying, at least not today, and she hasn't had a heart attack. She's had a panic attack. The panic attack is a jolt. She joins a church and starts meeting people. One of them tells her about Generation Exchange, a nonprofit that pairs local seniors with underserved schools. During her training, she meets women just like her, retired and isolated, sedentary and anxious. They tell her how the experience has changed them. Their connection with the kids and with each other has had an almost miraculous effect, not just on their happiness, but also on their health. Before long, Paula is standing at the front of a first grade classroom, an African-American woman with close cropped hair, watching the room, watching her. Like the neighborhood, the kids are predominantly black and Latino. Almost half are in foster care. Paula takes a tour of the room. A little boy is building a rocket ship out of Play-Doh and toothpicks. Is that going to the moon, she asks. At another table, a girl is building a tower out of plastic blocks. Paula pulls out her cell phone and snaps a picture. The girl beams and Paula grins. They need me, she thinks, and I need them. 
Paula takes her lunch in the staff room with the other volunteers, where she shares a laugh with a new friend, Linda. They live a few blocks apart, but they'd never met. The women make plans to get together after school, and just like that, Paula realizes she's not lonely anymore. Friendship has saved her life. So the next question, of course, pragmatically for all of us here, is how we go about making these friends. Now, we know back in our monkey days, Mm -hmm. grooming was very effective. You could just sort of walk up to a stranger and help remove some insects from their fur. That might surprise people today. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Might not go over so well. What are your thoughts about how best to make new friends? You know, the same things have contributed to bringing people together forever. I mean, Aristotle and Socrates recognized that things like similarity and proximity mattered. One of the most important things is the way shared interests and shared worldview come into it. If you volunteer for something about which you have a passion, you will automatically meet other people who share that passion if they're Mm -hmm. doing the same thing. And that is a really great basis on which to try to build a friendship. Better than trying to just throw yourself into a random social situation that doesn't have that kind of underlying uniting factor. The other thing I think is really interesting here is that the research shows that we're a little bit afraid to make ourselves vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. And so to invite someone to come Mm -hmm. do something with you when you're trying to kind of maybe make a friend requires putting yourself out there a little bit, right? And fair enough, that's not always easy to do. But People should know that there's research on something called the liking gap, which is that we assume that people Mm. like us less than they actually do. Mm. Generally, people like us more than we think. Mm. And that a lot of people are also having that same fear of vulnerability, and they might be ready to leap at the opportunity to get together if somebody's brave enough to suggest it, right? And we also think often we think that, especially today, we have our phones when we're commuting and things like that. And there was a fascinating study in Chicago where they had commuters on the regional rail line and they forced some of them to talk to strangers on the commute Mm, and others not to. And what they found was that even though nobody thought they wanted to do it, the ones who talked to strangers reported having a much more pleasant commute than they usually did. That's not exactly about friendship because we're still just talking about strangers, but it does get at this, what the researchers think was going on was this sort of assumption that other people wouldn't want to talk to you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so so if we understand, if we approach making friends with a little bit more generous assumption that maybe people mm-hmm. out there do want to talk to us, maybe they are looking to make friends too. You know, it won't be true of everyone, but it will be true of more people than you think. You talk about these concentric circles of friendship, and it strikes me that when you look at the hours, 50 hours to go from an acquaintance to a casual friend, 90 to a good friend, that we have these concentric circles, and we're probably constantly moving, people are moving in and out. They are. I think of it as shuffling the furniture of your friendships, kind of. You're moving, people move from one circle to another. I think that's true. And when you're thinking about prioritizing the people in your life, you do have to prioritize the people in the closest circle because they do deserve the biggest chunk of your time. They Mm -hmm. are the people who are most likely to be there for you when you really need someone. There is a kind of natural tendency to spend more time with some people. And there just isn't time to be friends with everyone in the same way. And that's okay. I think that's one of the other things I'm finding is that people need permission to understand Mm -hmm. that, like, not every friendship has to be the same. I've I've always loved this category of what I refer to as the future best friend. So (laughs) I remember when I was getting married, 
And there were a couple people that I had met pretty recently. And I thought, gosh, if I invite them to my wedding, I only met them a week ago. They're going to think I'm, you know, I'm desperate for attendees. But I called them up and I said, listen, I know this seems weird, but I just have a hunch that you're a future best friend. And (laughs) And I will be sorry that you weren't at my wedding. In 10 or 20 years, (laughs) we'll be saying, why weren't you at the wedding? And uh, were they? Did they become future best friends? They did. They did. And I've found that in midlife and, you know, as you get older, it's very possible to make new friends. It is. And part of it, I think, is hopefully we get a little less complicated and maybe better at identifying the kinds of people who are future best friends. I've noticed myself that in the last five to ten years, I have actually built up quite a big new network of friends within other working writers. But it is because I was Mm -hmm. actively working to do that because I felt like I needed support. I needed to be able to talk to people who had some sense of what I was doing. Mm Mm-hmm. I found so inspiring the story of the exchange program and Paula Dutton, which struck me as very hopeful, as heartening. Like there are structural changes that can be made to pull together people who should not be isolated. I got to spend a day walking around this first grade classroom with Paula Dutton, and these kids just adore her. The teacher thinks of her as another surrogate mother and surrogate grandmother for her own child. And then Paula has also made these really strong bonds with the other women. They were all African-American, older women in this particular program, although they don't all have to be women to volunteer in this. But what's really interesting here is that we now have a clear sense of just how bad for you loneliness and social isolation is, right? And that the flip side, friendship and social integration extends your life, it improves your health. But what we have less clarity about is what kinds of interventions and programs Mm -hmm. work to fix the problem. And so we know what this public health issue is now, Mm -hmm. but we don't have all the answers. I was thrilled to find Generation Exchange because it does seem to be working, and it does seem to be an example of what could work going forward. And why the creators think it's working is because Everybody's come together with a purpose. They're there to help these kids. There's a structure to Mm -hmm. it, you know. But there are a whole lot of opportunities for social interaction for the volunteers built into the program. Time for them to be together and befriend each other over the course of a school year, right? And that's really important. So they have regular weekly meetings. They're in the classroom, but then they're together, all the volunteers. And little things like that turn out to be really important. And so it will be interesting going forward. I hope that some of the researchers in this larger area are able to give us more of a sense of of what works and what doesn't so that, you know, our resources can be put towards, you know, creating programs that are going to make a difference in people's lives. Well, I think it's very exciting and heartening. And I think even on a scientific level, the fact that, A, we all collectively need to be together, and B, that we're biologically driven to make friends not just with our relatives, but outside the tribe. Yes. Right? It suggests a path towards a post-tribal, more connected world. Woodrow Wilson said, friendship is the only cement that will ever hold the world together. And hopefully due to your book, Lydia, there will be more cement and global cohesion and individual happiness and longevity and imperviousness to the common cold. (laughs) I hope so, too. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. If you have thoughts about friendship or any of the books in our series, come join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. You can sign up for the club and get a free copy of the new book, Friendship, 
That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and every major listening app, as well as Wondery.com. And don't forget to support our sponsors. They're the reason we can offer this podcast for free. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club. A special thanks today to Lydia Denworth. Her book, Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond is available wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Alex Kratoski. Sound designed by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our series producer is Michael Kobnott. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.